0: Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington, and for Tyler Fenwick as your host this week. As always, thanks for joining us. This week's extended interview features a conversation with Jane Henniger, the soon-to-be retired Executive Director of the ACLU of Indiana. IL reporter Alexa Schrake will have that interview for us in the second half of the episode. But before we get to that, I'm here in our Monument Circle studio with Alexa and IL Managing Editor Daniel Carson to bring you this week's news. Today is Wednesday, July 12, 2023, and these are your headlines. Alexa, we'll start with you, because you have news about what is likely to be the biggest Indiana Supreme Court decision this year. What can you tell us?
1: On the last day of June, the Indiana Supreme Court dropped its order vacating the injunction against the state's near-total abortion ban. As a refresher, the ban known as Senate Enrolled Act 1 prohibits abortion in Indiana except in limited cases of rape or incest, fatal fetal anonymity, or to protect the life or health of the mother. The bill originally took effect on September 15, 2022, but was preliminary enjoined a week later after special judge Kelsey Hanlon found the plaintiffs were likely to prevail on their claim that SCA 1 violated a woman's right to privacy under Article 1, Section 1 of the Indiana Constitution. The Indiana Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the case back in January, then ruled June 30th that the General Assembly has, quote, broad legislative discretion for determining whether and the extent to which to prohibit abortions, end quote. Justice Derek Multer wrote the opinion for the court, with Chief Justice Loretta Rush and Justice Mark Massa concurring. Justice Jeffrey Slaughter concurred in the judgment while Justice Christopher Goff partially dissented. Many state officials celebrated the court's decision while others expressed their disappointment. Indiana Attorney General Keita said, quote, We celebrate this day, one long in coming, but morally justified. Thank you to all the warriors who have fought for this day that upholds life, end quote. But Indiana House Minority Leader Phil Giaquenta, a Democrat from Fort Wayne, said, quote, This is a tremendously sad day for Hoosiers, but House Democrats will continue to fight for the fundamental rights of women and girls to control their own destinies, end quote. The case was remanded to the Monroe Circuit Court for further proceedings. Thanks, Alexa. I know you're working on a follow-up story to the abortion
0: decision for our next issue, so we'll be on the lookout for that. Next, I have some news about an Indianapolis attorney who was involved in the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. You likely remember my previous coverage of Quentin Cantrell, who was arrested in the spring of 2022 for entering the Capitol during the riot meant to stop the certification of President Joe Biden's electoral victory. Cantrell was convicted this past April of two federal misdemeanors for entering the Capitol for two minutes that day, and last month he was sentenced to 12 months of probation that includes six days of intermittent confinement, plus 100 hours of community service, a $35 special assessment, $500 in restitution, and a $6,000 fine. Cantrell didn't submit a sentencing memorandum to the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., opting instead to address the court in person. But he did submit character references from friends and colleagues, including two attorneys from his former law firm, Woodard, Emhart, Henry, Reeves, and Wagner. The government had requested a sentence of 60 days of home detention, plus probation, community service, and fines and fees. Cantrell was arrested alongside two of his relatives, Jared and Eric Cantrell. Eric pleaded guilty earlier this year and received three months of probation, while Jared was convicted of three federal misdemeanors and received an aggregate term of six months of prison time. Meanwhile, in the state courts, Hancock County Superior Court Judge D.J. Davis was publicly admonished this month for injudicious comments he made during an incident at his son's home in June 2022. According to the admonition from the Judicial Qualifications Commission, Davis arrived at his son's home after police were called there to oversee the son's removal of personal property from the marital residence. Davis says he was on legally prescribed narcotics at the time following recent back surgeries, and the drugs, quote, affected his judgment, causing him to use profanity when addressing a third party also at the scene. Davis apologized in a statement released to Indiana Lawyer, noting he has not taken those drugs since last August. The admonition was filed in lieu of formal disciplinary charges. One more thing from me, Indiana's next appellate judge has been named. Judge Paul Felix, currently of the Hamilton County Circuit Court, has been selected to succeed Judge Margaret Robb on the Court of Appeals of Indiana. Robb retired last month, and Felix was announced as her replacement on June 29th. Tyler was there at the announcement, and he's working on a story about Felix's career so far for our next issue. Be sure to pick up a copy of the July 19th issue to learn more. Okay, I'll stop
1: talking now and send it back to you, Alexa, for an update to the infamous case of the Delphi murders. The man charged with killing two teenage girls from Delphi confessed several times to the murders in a phone call with his wife while in prison, court records indicate. According to the Associated Press, Richard Allen allegedly told his wife Kathy during a phone call on April 3rd that he killed Abigail Williams and Liberty German the two teenagers' bodies were found February 14, 2017, while outside their home in Delphi. Allen County Judge Fran Gol last month allowed public access to more than 100 filings in the case for the first time. The documents had been under seal since December 2022. Records of the phone call with Allen's wife were included in the documents. The documents also included a list of items the police seized from Allen's home in October 2022, including a dozen knives with some described as double-edged or folding knives. A trial is currently scheduled to start January 8, 2024. All right, Daniel, now we'll finally come to you for your
0: updates. Let's start with your report on a recent Indiana Supreme Court decision.
2: Trial court correctly suppressed defendant's statements related to a polygraph that was supposed to be admissible after an Indiana State Police officer's omissions about notation changes he made on the polygraph form the US Supreme Court affirmed late last month. In its ruling, the High Court laid out a test for determining whether such sanctions are permissible under Trial Rule 37. The case involves Brian Lyons, who was brought in for questioning after his daughter reported to her grandmother that Lyons had sexually abused her. Lyons denied his daughter's allegations and agreed to sit for a polygraph. Polygraphs are generally admissible at trial, but Lyons, who was unrepresented at the time, signed a written stipulation with the prosecutor, agreeing that the results of his exam would be admissible if the state charged him. Indiana State Police Officer Dan Grass administered the exam a few days later, writing the word, quote, stipulated, at the top of the polygraph form based on the written stipulation. During the polygraph, Lyons admitted to mental illnesses, including bipolar disorders, and he said he saw, quote, spiritual shadows. That spoke to him a few days before the exam. Based on that information, Gress unilaterally converted the exam to an investigatory polygraph, which would not be admissible in court. However, the sergeant did not change the stipulated notation on the form. Lyons began making incriminating statements to Gress. Lyons was subsequently charged with level one felony child molesting. He was appointed a public defender who filed a motion to suppress the polygraph results. Gress changed the notation on the polygraph form to, quote, non-stipulated, but he did not scan the updated form into the case management system. He also failed to mention the change in subsequent testimony. The Lawrence Superior Court ultimately entered an order sanctioning the state by excluding any and all evidence generated or acquired by Gress, including Lyon's agreement to take the polygraph, the exam itself, and the post-exam interview. The Court of Appeals of Indiana affirmed the sanction. The Indiana Supreme Court granted transfer and also upheld the trial court's order. In its ruling, the court ruled, quote, before excluding evidence as a trial rule 37 discovery sanction." A trial court must find that one, the exclusion is the sole remedy available to avoid substantial prejudice, or two, that the sanctioned party's culpability reflects an egregious discovery violation, end quote.
0: Okay, and now how about news about a new lawsuit out of northern Indiana?
2: Portage Manor has been a fixture in St. Joseph County since the early 1900s, filling a need to house and care for impoverished individuals with physical and mental disabilities. The county has operated the assisted living facility since 1907, but it announced plans in February to close Portage Manor and to move its residents to other facilities. A group of the facility's residents have responded by filing a class action lawsuit to keep the South Bend site open. They filed the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana South Bend Division on June 26. The complaint names St. Joseph County Board of Commissioners President Carl Baxmeyer, St. Joseph County Council President Mark Root, and St. Joseph County as defendants. According to the complaint, the residents are seeking preliminary and permanent injunctions to enjoin the defendants from closing the facility, transferring residents to other nursing home facilities against their wishes, or failing to operate Portage Manor as required by law. They also seek a declaratory judgment and other equitable relief, which could include the appointment of a master to oversee operation of Portage Manor, damages and attorney fees, as well as a class certification.
0: Thanks, Daniel. To finish up today's headlines, I'll have you and Alexa tell our listeners about a story package that you're tag-teaming for our July 19th issue. Daniel, you first.
2: The U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions in June. Declaring race cannot be a factor in forcing institutions of higher education to look for new ways to achieve diverse student bodies. I'm looking at what Indiana's law school deans have to say about the Supreme Court ruling and what it can mean for their admission policies, as well as talking to advocacy groups and state lawmakers about the decision.
1: And what about you, Alexa? The U.S. Supreme Court released a 6-3 decision striking down President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The June 30th opinion killed the $400 billion plan, leaving millions on the hook for repayments that are expected to resume by late summer, according to the AP. The court held that the administration needs Congress's endorsement before undertaking such a costly program.
0: Like I said, you can read both of those stories in our July 19th issue. Okay, that'll do it for this week's headlines. If you want more legal news, head over to TheIndianaLawyer.com for regular news coverage. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear Alexa's interview with Jane Henniger.
2: Taft. Today's modern law firm at Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com.
1: Have With me today in the studio, Jane Henniger, Executive Director of the ACLU of Indiana, Jane has been with the ACLU since 2012, and she recently announced her plans to retire. Since her graduation from the IU Maurer School of Law in 1988, Jane has worked as a judicial law clerk in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, an executive post with the Family and Social Services Administration, as Deputy Commissioner and General Counsel of the Indiana Department of Administration, State Director for Senator Evan Baugh, Deputy Director of Indianapolis, and Interim Director of the Coalition for Homelessness Intervention and Prevention Before Landing at the ACLU of Indiana. She'll retire from the ACLU effective January 1st, 2024, or as soon as a successor is found. Jane, to start, tell us how you ended up at the ACLU of Indiana.
3: Well, thanks, Alexa. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Your recap of my career um, identifies me as a lawyer, so as a a product of law school, of course, studied all the cases in which the ACLU was a litigant or otherwise instrumental in bringing a court challenge, vindicating civil liberties. But I chose a track instead of practicing law. I worked in government for the bulk of my career at various levels. And after taking a break from the um, mayor's office, I uh, got the opportunity to um, do this job as executive director of the ACLU of Indiana. And I think of it as my career up to that point, I had been pushing government to be the best it could be from the inside. And now for the last 11 years, I've been pushing government to be the best it can be from the outside. And both have been great experiences. But even with all the ups and downs and heartbreaks of working at the ACLU, this has by far been the most fun and rewarding stop in my on my career
1: so what drives your interest in civil rights work
3: fortunate in the aclu of indiana and in our larger aclu family across the country and at national aclu to be just an organization full of people who are passionate about this work everyone has their own uh, origin story some Many of my coworkers here and across the country are, f- are from impacted communities, people whose um, families and traditions urge them to do this work. I would say that as a woman, you know, I have been aware of the need for government to lead on, on equality and seeing my mother as a woman who was born in 1925, have to struggle to get paid a a fair wage compared to men who did the same job. And then my father, who was a local politician in Monroe County, and we're Quakers, and we always tried to live our values and uh, be productive citizens that are contributing to the environment which we find ourselves. And I'm a good liberal in Indiana, and the ACLU is a great place to land if, you're, if you want to do good by people um, and, and making sure that the laws and governments in Indiana are, act consistently with the Constitution and the values that, that our U.S. Constitution contains. And so
1: when you joined the ACLU of Indiana in 2012, your appointment built upon the Raising the Bar for Civil Liberties campaign to expand the organization's capacity for education, outreach and legal assistance throughout the state. Looking back over the last 11 years, do you think that campaign accomplished its goal?
3: Yeah, so that campaign was started right before I uh, was hired at the ACLU, and it was the brainchild of former Indianapolis lawyer, Larry Rubin, who anybody who knew Larry knew him to be a character and a crusader. He was a longtime cooperating attorney for the ACLU, which is back in the day when we had very few paid staff and most of our legal work and most of the rest of the work was done by volunteers. Lawyers like Larry Rubin would donate their time to take cases on behalf of the ACLU representing people whose rights were being threatened. Larry wanted to honor his parents with a gift to the ACLU and wanted it to be strategic and targeted. And he felt that while we, at that time in 2011 and still to this day, have the very best in legal talent, Uh, Ken Falk is an icon of Indiana lawyers and lawyering and the way that he does it so selflessly and so incredibly well Uh, for decades now, first at Indiana Legal Services and and for the last 20 plus years at the ACLU is um, aspiration for every lawyer and every citizen, I would say. But Larry knew that to be fully effective that the ACLU had to fire on all cylinders. And, and I really think that that proved genius and prescient when we fast forward 10 or even just to 2016 and to 2020, the need to not only be a powerhouse in litigation, which the ACLU of Indiana and ACLU across the country has always been, but to be able to advocate in the legislature, be able to inform people with our communication strategy, talking to people directly about their rights. You know, we can fight for people's rights. We can win those rights and secure them in the courts. But if people don't know the rights they have, they can't exercise them. Right. And and also, you know, we can't pressure the legislature to do the right thing. We can't pressure the governor or uh, mayors or council people by ourselves. If we have people, informed citizens behind us, with us, shoulder to shoulder, um, our work is much more powerful and impactful. And that's proven true um, since 2016 with people really um, acting consistent with their values and saying no to hate and saying no to divisiveness. There's still a battle going on, as we all know, and that's why we can't rest on our laurels. But Larry Rubin's investment back in 2011 really sowed the seeds so that we could be in a position we are today to fight on all fronts. I would say that's now more important than ever, not just because Partisanship has become so deeply entrenched, but because of the, we now have the most conservative U.S. Supreme Court than we've had in a couple of generations. When um, at points in our history, the ACLU has been able to secure and make major advancements on behalf of individuals and, and groups of people in the federal courts, Um including with the U.S Supreme Court being our backstop, we can't rely on them solely anymore. We had some um, marginal victories in the last court session, but we have had a lot of losses as well most most recent of which was affirmative action and and Dobbs last year uh, and we probably will see more losses on the horizon. so more and more we in Indiana and our Colleagues across the country are having to focus, what, can, what victories can we obtain? What lines can we hold at the state level? And that means looking at our state courts, looking at our legislatures. Some states have ballot initiatives in Kansas and Michigan. They've secured the right um, for women to access abortion by a constitutional ballot initiative. We don't have that option readily available here in Indiana. So we have to be creative and we have to use the tools that um, are available to us. Every state is different. And now we, because of the foresight of donors like Larry and so many of our partners, we now have the resources to do what we need to do as challenges arise.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned some of those victories and losses. You know, the ACLU of Indiana has been involved in several high-profile cases involving issues like abortion and LGBTQ rights and voting rights, just to name a few. You know, you've seen both victories and losses on those issues, but the victories have often been very significant. Um, is there one legal victory that you think has been the most impactful during your
3: time at the organization? So, like I said, several people have asked me similar questions since I've announced my retirement. and. Uh, I keep on, so I've thought about it, and I keep going back to no one victory, but to the look on people's faces, the feeling of people when, that we represented, whose rights we have vindicated when we have those victories. The victories, of course, are gratifying for us in a sense of our work and our sense of accomplishment. One of the glories of this job is that we get to see how um, it impacts people's lives, how it impacts their sense of dignity and self-worth to be recognized, to have, to be seen. So so I'll just give you an example. When in our marriage equality battle, for, so first we were part of Freedom Indiana and we joined with businesses and other civil liberties groups to... Uh, fight against the the effort to amend our state constitution to ban same-sex unions and marriages. We were successful in defeating that marriage amendment, that constitutional amendment, and immediately, this gave Ken Falk great pleasure, immediately within hours of sine die, um, filed uh, litigation to obtain the, the legal right to, for same-sex couples to marry in Indiana. The courts acted very expediently. And within, I think, six months, we had a victory in the Seventh Circuit, which was very rewarding, but it also had the great joy of seeing it go into effect immediately. So my staff and I all went down to the city county building and got to see all the people lined up outside of the city clerk, the county clerk's office to apply for marriage license. And there were hundreds of couples, and we got to congratulate them, high-five them, and see the joy—sorry, always checks me Um, out—see the joy um, on their faces. So those are the moments that I remember when our plaintiffs have been vindicated. Our plaintiffs are so brave, so brave, Um, much more brave than the institutions. In our state, individuals who you know are increasingly exposed because of the dangerous world in which we increasingly live in, and yet they are willing to stand um, with us and and take a stand, a public stand for what they think is right. Most recently, on behalf of their children, in defense of access to gender affirming care. So, being able to to see the real life, real world immediate impact. Just even being able to access the courts, access litigation, or having us with them at the legislature to advocate with them is rewarding for us because they're so brave and awesome and deserve, you know, freedom and equality like everybody else.
1: So, relatedly, um, what is your proudest moment of your time with the ACLU of Indiana?
3: Those moments of you know, having fights where often people think we're being quixotic, that we don't have a chance, um, that it's Indiana and it doesn't matter. I would say, you know, our our fight, our multi-pronged fight on, on behalf of reproductive rights for women is another example of that. I mean, right now, we have two cases. We just lost our defending our injunction of the abortion ban, in the um, state Supreme Court, but that was our challenge based on the state constitutional amendment. Still, you know, are assessing our next steps in that case, but at the same time, we still have an injunction on behalf of women of faith based on RIFRA, this Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But while that litigation is ongoing, and for now, at least until August 1st and maybe beyond the ban. Is not in effect in Indiana. We are taking the long term approach as well with our Let's Talk About Abortion campaign and trying to undo decades of stigma and misinformation about abortion and who accesses it and how and why they access it and make sure eventually that the voices of the majority of Hoosiers, not just the majority of Americans, majority of Hoosiers believe that women should have access to an abortion. And the fact that our legislature um, repeatedly ignores the, the majority of their constituents isn't right in a democracy. And it's certainly not right, an important question that so fundamentally impacts women's lives and futures. So, you know, being able to play both the short term strategies and think of and and effectuate long term strategy that we've been increasingly be able to do and I'm really proud that we've with the team that we've built, with the resources that we've developed, that we're now in a in a position at the ACLU of Indiana to take advantage of all of those strategies and make sure that in the end, in the end, that we win on behalf of the people of Indiana. So what is your advice for the
1: person who replaces you? And what issues do you foresee the ACLU will be working on going forward?
3: I'm old enough, Alexa, to have had several colleagues who've retired. And I think the one thing I've learned from them is not to pass any of my learnings on to my predecessor. I think every person comes into these jobs with their own fresh perspective. I hope, I pray that the person who is the next executive director of the ACLU, brings different life experiences, a different perspective, a fresh perspective, a new energy to this work. My team deserves the best. They're just awesome individuals who give their heart and soul. Not, I mean, they do it for for the ACLU at the ACLU, but really they do it for the values that we all embrace. I would say that so the advice that I would give if I were to give advice, which I'm not going to, is take advantage of the talents of our staff, of the expertise of our staff. And I would say, you know, there are, there are challenges still ahead, and we are increasingly. A society that has politicized and made subject of partisanship issues that should never in America, and our democracy, be topics of partisanship. And I think that will continue to be a challenge that the next leader is going to have to confront. You know, I mean, it breaks my heart that voting is a partisan issue. You can tell which party someone is, whether they speak out in favor of voting rights how is that right in a democracy? That's insane, right? And we've made partisan health care. Who gets to access it? Who gets to decide? Who gets to access it and how? We've made partisan who gets to love whom and how? I mean, all of those things should never be the subject of partisan politics, right? I mean, especially in America, especially in a democracy. So, you know, as long as those issues are being weaponized for purely partisan reasons. They'll be a challenges for the ACLU, and it's a very difficult uh, road to navigate. We work on the waterfront of issues. Many of our partners are partners uh, focusing on one right or another, and we have to think about them all and how they intersect. Uh, and it's, I mean, a very challenging job, but it's an incredibly rewarding job. And I just hope that my fellow Americans, my fellow Hoosiers learn that in, in America and in a democracy, we have to stop pitting people against one another. And we need to like focus on real policies, which, you know, we can have, I believe that our system is better when we have parties that talk and debate and have different views about real issues, not made-up issues, right? Real issues like how do we how do we regulate the economy and who should it benefit? And, you know, what do we do about climate change? And do we even believe in science that says climate change is happening? You know, there are a whole range of issues. How do we support our infrastructure? how do we pay for that infrastructure so that our businesses can flourish so that people can have safe streets? What is the proper role of public safety in our lives and in our communities? Those are all legitimate just um, dis- points of discussion, but we're not discussing those. We're at the ACLU, we are rising to defend people who are being targeted to change the subject, right? It's much easier for party a party to win on victimizing and demonizing people, marginalized groups. It's much harder for them to win talking about economic policy and environmental policy and the things that are really impacting all of us in in fundamental ways.
1: And so, kind of generally speaking, uh, what are some of the most significant changes you've seen to Indiana law throughout your career?
3: You know, um I, mean, I hesitate because one of the things that's both reassuring in this work, and this was true when I worked in government and when I volunteered in politics as I was working at the ACLU, is that you know, our society's been in a has had factions before, our society has had divisiveness. Before, and we've risen above it. So, I hesitate to say, to suggest that Indiana law, as it pertains to civil liberties, I don't know anything about business law or <laughs> contract law, but as it pertains to civil liberties, I mean, we've always had a spotty record in the United States. And you know, that's why the ACLU has been around a hundred years because there's always work to be done. I mean, when we started, we started in in part to defend people who'd been arrested under the Alien and Sedition Act. And essentially, they were arrested and incarcerated for years for for speaking out against the government in ways that like it's the fodder of night late night television nowadays, right? But back then, get thrown in jail for criticizing the president during war, right? And we've made so many advances, and yet we've got so far still to go. I and mean, one, of, one of the just so entrenched problems in our society to this day is the way that systemic racism is, is entrenched into every aspect of our criminal legal system and no one person, no one elected official, even on a state by state basis, has the authority or the capacity to fix it, right? It's going to take every judge, every parole officer, every mayor, every police chief, every legislature, identifying the different, many different levels of the system at which racism is injected into people's decisions, into the way that we view varying crimes, the way that we set bail, the way that we level sentences, the way that we determine who gets out of jail, the way that we determine who has to go back to jail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And until we, as a society, come to terms and admit that racism isn't gone, and that it's deeply embedded into almost every aspect of our lives. It's no shame on any one person. It's only a shame on any one person who denies it. That's how I feel it. And my parents were multi generational southerners, right? But they tried to live their life the right way. I try to live my life the right way, fighting right for the for the right things, and recognizing that my. Privilege in the world is a product of that system, and that's not right. My father was a World War II veteran, horribly poor before the war. His father was a, a sharecropper in the Dust Bowl. But when he came out of World War II, he got a college education under the, under the GI Bill. He and my mother got a mortgage under the, the Veterans Program servicemen of color who served with my father didn't get either of those things, right? So so through the generations, every one of us have either have been impacted by our relationship to power and privilege in different ways. And the only shame in America is not owning up to that and not being honest about it. It can be painful, but it's it's a fact and there's no shame in recognizing the facts as lawyers like to say all the time <laughs> just kind
1: of going a little bit off topic um, <laughs> so what are some of your hobbies
3: well i was thinking about like what am i going to do with my time after this um and as you can tell alexa i like to talk about these issues i also believe that it's our responsibility as uh, citizens to talk about these issues. I often say to my staff and and to my friends and my family, if if people over the state house can legislate about it, if they can create laws about it, I can talk about it. So that means no matter where I am, I can talk about abortion because there are people who are legislating about it. I can talk about being trans, I can talk about being gay, I can talk about all those things and what it means to the people who wear those identities and and it because it's being legislated right now, right? And so I just want to emphasize to people that it's not impolite to talk about politics or the subject issues that are raised in politics. It's not it shouldn't make anyone feel uncomfortable. It's part of our God-given right as Americans. It's as American as apple pie. So I'm gonna have a lot more time to talk about it. You know, my in-laws might not like that, but uh, you know, I, and I hope I find a, a productive outlet for that advocacy. But, I mean, going back to you know how I found myself at this job, that's how I was raised. You know, my parents had big dinner tables and they talked about these issues and they wanted to hear from different points of views um, and they wanted to talk about why people felt the way they do and challenge their own beliefs and assumptions and challenge the assumptions and beliefs of others. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that it's not it's it's not meant in any way other than. Finding a better place for all of us, so that we can all be free and equal in America.
1: So, do you have plans for your retirement?
3: Other than um, talking obnoxiously to whoever will listen to me. No, no. I have a daughter who's marrying this year, but by the time I retire, that's going to be done. So, I just look forward to the next chapter, whatever that be, and I hope that I, I continue to be of productive use and be a positive influence on my environment, wherever that may be and whatever that might mean. All
1: right. So I think that'll do for this week's interview. Jane, thank you so much again for joining me today. To our listeners, head over to the Lawyer.com to hear our past interviews. You can also find us on your favorite podcast apps. We'll talk to you soon.